Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I can generally be described as fun and fancy-free, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a hapless warrior in desperate need of toughening up, preferably through a soaring anthem and a killer training montage, as we watch through 61 films and counting. Thankfully, I have a captain with me who's ready to get down to business, who's swift as a coursing river, with all the force of a great typhoon. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. Thank you for introducing me using the lyrics of the greatest Disney song of all time. Oh, we're going there already, are we? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how serious I'm being with that, but in my heart it kind of is. Having just rewatched the film this morning, I don't know how much I can argue with you on that. It is an absolute banger. Uh, I'm excited to get into Mulan, especially after we were torn apart on uh, Hercules. I'm still reeling from our first ever disagreement, basically ever in our entire friendship. In our lives. <laughs> but we made it through, we're here, and uh, just before we get into this episode, I'm going to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion, because... One of the reasons some of our recent episodes have been a little bit late is because I was doing something very exciting in my day job at Empire Magazine, uh, and I've done a big feature on the new Little Mermaid. So in the latest issue of Empire with Guardians of the Galaxy on the cover, you'll find my feature on the Little Mermaid. I had an incredible time talking to Rob Marshall, the director of the film, but I spoke to Alan Menken, Sam. I spoke to Alan Menken for half an hour, and we had a really nice chat, and he was very cool. I mean, that makes me extremely jealous. <laughs> for me, it was just as after the, the story that I've previously told about the Beauty and the Beast junket, being shoved into a room for five minutes with Alan Menken, having not been told by the PRs that I was supposed to be interviewing him, and having a panicked but lovely just sit down with him for five minutes, I actually got to ask him proper questions that I'd really thought about and prepared... So that was a real, real treat for me. Chatting to Lin-Manuel Miranda as well, who we basically talk about on every single pod. So yeah, if you're interested in that, you can go and find it on newsstands now. I had a wonderful time. But for this episode, we have some backup. A woman entering the ranks who's ready to show the lads how it's done, and who will gladly follow into battle any day. Especially if that battle involves movie chat, because she's far more knowledgeable and experienced than either of us. She's a former Radio 1 film critic who can regularly be heard across the airwaves, popping up all over the BBC, including on Radio 5 Live. She's one of the voices behind PodPod, the excellent podcast all about, well, 
podcasts, and she's joining us right in the middle of subbing in on Kermode and Mayo's take. So we are incredibly lucky to have with us on Disneyversity this episode, Rihanna Dillon. Welcome. Hi, thank you. What a lovely introduction. That was so nice. He's good at that, isn't he? Yeah, he's really good at that. Often when I get introduced, people actually have no idea what I do, and it's often my (laughs) bio is about 10 years old. So uh, that was great. Thank you. No, your bio went up to this week. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Incredible. Because you are booked, you are busy, and we are lucky to have you with us, uh, squeezing this into your schedule. It's such a delight to have you with us. And because we're lucky in that that we get people on this show who are interesting and who do lots of cool things. And yeah, Rihanna, you are absolutely in that lineage. Thank you. uh, Yeah, how, how are you doing? How are things with you? Yeah, really good, thank you. I'm wearing, I sadly don't have a Mulan jumper, but I do have a Hercules jumper, which I'm wearing. So this is my zero to hero. You can't really, this is not great for podcasting, but it has like quite a fun thing on the back. That's cool. I can see a Greek kind of pillar. I can see, was that Pegasus on the back, was it? (laughs) Yeah, it is, yeah. Amazing. So Ben went from hero to zero for a lot of our listeners on the last podcast because it it turns out he doesn't like Hercules very much. So I'm glad we've got another member of Team Herc. I love Hercules and I really love the animation, actually. So, yeah, when I saw this jumper, I was like, I've got to have it. And I used to have a a Hercules pencil case and it just took me right back to, you know, when you used to like stab your pencil case with your pencil and the lead always snapped off and it Mm. was just like peppered with holes, but it was still very much beloved, my my Pegasus. (laughs) Hercules pencil case. Amazing. So you were always a Disney kid then. I feel like it was, you were a similar age to us. It was hard to grow up in the 90s and not be a Disney kid, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing, isn't it? It does get quite boring and repetitive when you go on lots of different podcasts and they ask you, you know, your introduction to film. And it is, for me, it's Disney, which is fine. On this podcast, it's not boring or repetitive, but it's just, (laughs) you, you feel a bit guilty that your first introduction to film as a child wasn't Scorsese or you know <laughs> whatever you feel like it should be kids growing up now they have Hugo Hugo could be your introduction <laughs> That's true. to movies That's so true. the Hugo to Goodfellas pipeline um, <laughs> so for you as a kid what are the Disney films that you grew up on which were the ones that were big ones for you as a kid I had Cinderella was one of I guess one of the oldest ones Dumbo Uh, I loved Dumbo so much. The Little Mermaid I had, which always was, it was the bit where Ursula kind of rises out of the sea, absolutely enormous. That was the bit Mm -hmm. on my tape, which was completely messed up. So I could, (laughs) I always had to like fast forward that bit because um, I don't know why. It also really frightened me, but it was the bit on my VHS, which I could never properly watch. And I wonder if it was just, you know, my VHS's way of protecting me from from that (laughs) fear. Because when I did watch it and it's entirety it's so horrifying that scene (laughs) yeah it was just trying to protect you from things that you couldn't unsee as a kid yeah and interesting that you had some of the old school like original classic disney movies because often uh, i think we talked about a lot of us had the kind of the 90s films as they were coming out and some of the 70s ones were released around that time Uh, things like robin hood comes up a lot but i don't think we've had that many guests saying yeah kind of dumbo and cinderella yeah i I don't think I really saw the really old ones that much. I had definitely had Snow White and refused to watch it because oh, that was terrifying. It's boring as well. It's so boring. <laughs> uh, you, you're not totally wrong. You're not totally wrong. It's no Dumbo. Yeah, I don't know what the oldest one. 
I had was it might have been something like the Jungle Book even or mm-hmm. Sword in the Stone. Yeah, but that's so that's cool. You've been a deep. I mean, to call Dumbo and Cinderella deep is is <laughs> not quite right. But they're um, deep. They're totally deep. Chronologically deep. You've yeah. gone deep. Absolutely. And and then I guess I didn't because I've I did, of course grew up with the nineties ones. So Aladdin and The Lion King, two of my all time faves. Pocahontas. Pocahontas, I guess, for me was like a real turning point where I started. Where I was like, oh, because I had lot. You can see I've got very long dark hair, and I was like, oh, this Disney prince actually looks a little bit like me. So that was hugely exciting. Open up a whole new world of fancy dress for me when I was little because I actually looked. <laughs> Mind you, also Jasmine. You know, God, I remember having the cutest little Jasmine dress but again it was like one of the first times where i was like oh my god i can dress up like this princess this is amazing um so that was very exciting oh that's cool that's so great and i mean you've been a film critic for a decade now at least yeah and least, yeah. so then you're in a similar-ish position to me I, I guess in that you follow these films as they've been coming out it's part mm-hmm. of your work to kind of see these films and to see what Disney is up to nowadays. So either through that or just through catching up on things, what are the films that you've seen more recently in terms of Disney that have stood out and that have meant a lot to you? Well, like Princess and the Frog, when did that come out? That wasn't quite... 2009? Was that just at uni, probably? Wasn't quite a critic Mm. at that point. I think I was a critic 2011. But I remember going to the cinema then and it was one of the very few times I think that and Slumdog Millionaire was like the only times where I looked around the cinema room and realised that actually there were people who weren't white in the audience and uh, you know like the majority were not white and that was Mm -hmm. I think those were the two times I can remember being in cinema where that ever happened so I remember feeling like how important Princess and the Frog was for that reason and it's a great film it's such a brilliant fun engaging film and then um i also got to interview alan menkin and um, oh, just you? hearing you talk about that yeah yeah yes. a few years ago and it was just i think i sort of signed off with being like you know you were the soundtrack to my childhood thank you so much kind of thing you what do you say <laughs> to a man like that yeah i think i did the same thing i was basically just like just before we end like thank you yeah for like absolutely everything you're amazing it's kind of, you've kind of got to do it sometimes i'm sorry sam it's your turn next i'm here in the never interviewed alan menken club what's that about <laughs> i mean i'm not a journalist that might be part of it but still it hurts you've got to write an academic book yes. just on alan menken it's possible it's possible i remember doing a q a for coco and mm. That really floored people, that film. I don't think anyone was expecting to be quite so moved by it. And um, a lot of people found that an incredibly special one. And I loved watching, like, I took one of my oldest friends who was a other real Disney nut to um, go and see that at the screening in the Soho Hotel, I think it was. And um, she was not prepared for the tears. So she was just, I just had to leave her sobbing while I went up and interviewed, I think, Lee Unkrich for that. <laughs> Wait, you stay here. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> Set of yeah, shoes. Like, mascara pouring down her face. So those are the ones that kind of really cut through for me, I think, since since being a critic. Okay, well, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, we're getting ready for war against the Huns in a historical China-set epic, 1998's Mulan. Right then, Sam, for anybody who doesn't know the story of Mulan, what are we talking here? What is the plot of this movie? 
As China prepares for war against the invading Huns, young Mulan decides to disguise herself as a man and join the army in place of her elderly father. And with the help of her guardian spirit, the dragon Mushu, Mulan sets out to become a soldier, get down to business and defeat the Huns. Okay, there we have it. That is the story of this film, which... Okay, let's let's get into the background of this movie, because we've been talking about the Disney Renaissance for a while now, and a lot of these films feel like it's Disney looking to other cultures, other countries, to find interesting stories to tell, whether that's Aladdin, or Pocahontas, or Hercules, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mulan feels like it's in that lineage, so... When did it come up that Disney wanted to tell this story looking back to a kind of Chinese war fable as a story for the studio? Well, the idea actually came from outside of Disney. It came from a children's author called Robert Sansusi. And Disney approached this guy for ideas for stories to adapt. Just give us anything. What have you got? And he gave them the manuscript for the book that he was currently working on, which was based on that Mulan story which is a, a very old story. It, it started off as a folk song dating back to around the 5th century, was written down in the 6th, and has been passed down through the generations in China and, and altered in, in various ways, in the same way that a lot of the stories Disney has adapted in the past have been. And it just so happened, conveniently, that Disney was already working on a short film at the time, which was set in China, called China Doll. So they were already in a similar kind of geographical, historical, aesthetic space. At least some of their artists were at this point. And this was a story about an oppressed Chinese girl who was swept up by a British prince and taken to live a happier life in Europe. Oh no, we've heard this story before, Sam. Oh god. Yeah, that is that is not good. That is like as white saviour narrative as it gets. Pocahontas 2.0 right there. Yeah, yeah. so not the best. It's Pocahontas, but making all the mistakes that even Pocahontas didn't quite make. So they did not make that movie, and that is definitely for the best. They folded the development of China Doll into an adaptation of Sansusi's Mulan story, which feels like the wise choice. And you said this was a song. This was like a folk song. Did that song go, let's get down to business? <laughs> I imagine that was maybe not the most faithful adaptation. No, it didn't. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about it in Discarded. Uh, I have no idea what the tune is. I'm not sure if anybody knows, but it's a ballad. It's like a song slash poem. There's obviously various different translations of it that differ very slightly. We'll talk about that in, in Discarded. In terms of this version, then, we have a couple of directors who I don't think I recognise these names, Barry Cook and Tony Bancroft. We also have a, a musical name coming up. This is not a Menken movie. We're going to get onto that in a minute. Uh, but on the musical side of things is Jerry Goldsmith. So who, who are the people making this film? Where did they come from in the Disney system? And we just have to point out up front, these are definitely not Asian names. No, that's true. And while, similarly with Pocahontas, they've made something of an effort here to cast mainly Asian and Asian-American voice actors, although not exclusively, which we can talk about as well, there's not a lot of Asian, not a lot of Chinese representation behind the scenes at all. So instead, we've got the directors, Barry Cook, who was the head of effects animation at Disney up to this point, and he'd worked on most of the Renaissance films, which we've talked about in the past, often have excellent effects animation. He was, he was obviously very good at what he did. 
And then you've got Tony Bancroft, who had a pretty meteoric rise. He was an assistant animator on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. His first film as lead animator was The Lion King, where he did Timon, which oh, is good. Okay. Good character animation. Oh, yeah, great character animation. Yeah. And he was preparing to animate the Gargoyles in Hunchback. For a while, he was cast as the Gargoyles in Hunchback. But he was recommended by the Lion King directors to direct Mulan. So this guy went straight from assistant to Timon to director wow. in the space of like three films that he worked on. That is impressive. Yeah, you can really see that in the film as well, I think. Because I think there's some really expressive character animation especially in non-human characters as well and you're talking about barry cook as somebody who specializes in effects animation this is like a big spectacular looking movie Um, we'll get into it when we discuss the film properly but there are big set pieces there are big sweeping cgi shots it has a real level of spectacle to it so Mm. even though i don't recognize these names it's interesting even you explaining where these guys have come from that you see that on the front end in mulan Uh, What about Jerry Goldsmith? What are we talking about on the music side of things? So Jerry Goldsmith did the score, and he is a fairly storied composer. He'd worked on uh, a lot of the Star Trek films. He worked on, you know, things like Chinatown, Planet of the Apes, Aliens. So he had a, a long history in Hollywood, and the score here is great. But he didn't write the songs, and neither did Alan Menken or Stephen Schwartz. Where did our boys go? Where's Alan Menken gone? (laughs) Alan Menken, I actually don't know. I think he just fancied a break. The next Disney film that he worked on was Home on the Range. And the next one after that was the... Yes. (laughs) So that's one thing we can look forward to with Home on the Range. Not the most critically lauded film in the canon, but at least Menken's back. And then the next Disney film we did after that was the Tim Allen remake of The Shaggy Dog. Uh, So that career, I think, kind of came to its natural end of of, of Mencken as a a songwriter at Disney. Stephen Schwartz was originally hired while he was working on Hunchback to do both the music and lyrics for Mulan. That was the original idea. It was going to be all him. I guess that's part of why Mencken wasn't working on it. Schwartz was always a songwriter as well as a lyricist, and I think he wanted, you know, that that part of him was coming out when he was working on Hunchback, when he was working on Pocahontas, and, and I think it was probably promised to him at some point you're going to be able to do both. And that's what he was hired to do. So he was heavily involved in the film's early development. He wrote three songs. He finished three songs, which do not appear in the film, because he was hired by Jeffrey Katzenberg to write the songs for The Prince of Egypt. Oh, so Katzenberg nicked him for DreamWorks. Yeah, and Eisner was fuming. At this point, Schwartz is is meant to be doing both movies, but when Eisner finds out about Prince of Egypt, he is livid, and he says, you've got to choose. You've got to quit Prince of Egypt, or you're not going to get Mulan. So Schwartz refused, he went with Katzenberg, and they dropped all the songs that he already wrote for Mulan. Wow, oh my god, he lured him. Katzenberg lured him to DreamWorks with promises of Diet Coke and dreams and... Uh, yes, Stephen Schwartz left Disney. Okay, that's interesting. He dug, dug, duggity dug himself a hole out of the studio into its biggest rival. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. I think people like the songs on The Prince of Egypt. Yeah, do you know what? I, that is a massive blind spot for me. Former Disneyversity guest Amon Warman is a massive fan of The Prince of Egypt, especially of the songs. I, I'll need to get caught up on that at some point. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen it ever. It's okay. Um, so we'll have to check in on what Stephen Schwartz got up to. But Mulan isn't 
a musical in the sense that a lot of the other Renaissance movies are. It doesn't really function as a musical. It has songs in it. We're heading back to that Disney phase of, I guess these films should have songs in them, but it's not going to be an all-out musical. It doesn't have that many musical numbers, and it doesn't have that Broadway structure that Mencken and Ashman brought in at the start of this era. No, the songs stop about halfway through, and I think it's a very effective and dramatic and noteworthy moment when the songs do stop. There is a a point where, a very palpable, deliberate point where this stops being a musical. And I don't know if that's the best decision, but it is a a decision that I think works and it's very effective. But I also think there's behind-the-scenes reasons they lost their songwriter during the development stages. They got in a guy called Matthew Wilder, who was a pop singer-songwriter to write the the music. Uh, It was kind of a one-hit wonder. He did the song, I'm never gonna break my stride. You're never gonna hold me down. down. Yeah, Yeah, I know that song. Oh, no. I got to keep on moving. So that's Matthew Wilder. That's his one hit. He also produced No Doubt's album, Tragic Kingdom. Oh, that's a banger album. So amid these extremely random credits, he wrote a demo for a musical adaptation of an Anne Rice novel called Cry to Heaven, which I don't think ever got made, but that caught someone at Disney's ear. They hired him to write the songs for Mulan. And then they brought in David Zippel from Hercules as a lyricist in July 1997. So like around a year before the movie came out. Wow. Cutting it down to the wire there. So I think all of this chaos might explain why there's only four songs in this movie, but I do also think that works structurally in terms of what they're trying to achieve with the film. Right then, I think we've discussed the context of this film enough. Shall we, as they say, get down to business? Shall we discuss Mulan? Let's get into the film itself. This is a good one. I'm excited. I'm ready. Are you guys ready for this? Yes, so ready. Sam, are you ready? I didn't hear a Oh, yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> I, I need that reassurance from you, man. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay, we've clarified. We're all ready. Let's do this thing. As we've spoken about then, Sam, this is Disney once again looking to another culture, another country for inspiration, and uh, specifically looking to China for Mulan. And in this film, it begins with... A very distinctive different look for a Disney film. It is taking that influence of Chinese ink drawings, ink paintings. That is our way into the film. We've had storybooks going right back to the very earliest Disney films, but here we have almost a canvas and the scene being painted for us in this really beautiful way. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by how they choose to open these movies because for so long it was, here's a storybook, and now whenever they replace that with something else, like in um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, where our waiting reduction to the film is this shot that takes us through the cathedral, it's like, okay, that is how they are choosing to contextualise this world. And here it's with this inkwash sequence inspired by traditional Chinese art. So sequences like this and like some of the moments in A Girl Worth Fighting For, they directly nod to the Shemohua tradition of inkwash painting in China. And for me, that really evokes one of the masters of Chinese animation, a guy called Tawe. He only made about four short films, but they're all absolutely astonishing. And, and they try and translate this Shimohua tradition into moving images in a really successful way, and he's been one of the most venerated animators out of China. I don't know if it was a direct influence, but I'd be surprised if none of the Disney artists were exposed to any of his work at animation school. Certainly, my students are exposed to his work at animation school. 
And in general, I think the film's visual style is modelled on other forms of traditional Chinese art. So there's lots of like watercolour effects and soft colours in the backgrounds and the less detailed designs of the characters as well. So you know, especially compared to something like Hercules, which were those quite busy Gerald Scarf-inspired designs. So I think yeah, those influences run all the way through the films. But it's really good to see stuff like the opening sequence, like Goworth fighting for, where it's okay, we are doing something different. We're using musical sequences a bit like they did in the line. King as an excuse to bring in more overt influences from the art of the culture that we're trying to depict. Yeah, as somebody who, I mean, we'll say it for it, I don't know very much about any of this at all. And as an ignorant viewer, I'm watching this film going, I don't quite know like how I'm supposed to feel in terms of the way that this film presents Chinese people and Chinese culture, that it feels so vibrant and different. It feels like there's an energy to how Disney is interpreting this style. But as we were talking about, there are not that many Chinese creators or Asian names attached to this film. And so I don't know the level to which Disney is kind of homaging that style and to what end it's maybe not getting stuff right or it doesn't it feels like it's trying to do something interesting but i don't know how authentically it's doing that how authentically it needs to do that how did you guys feel watching this film back i do think it's absolutely beautiful i think the landscapes in the background especially are really kind of breathtaking i think they do nature incredibly well and it's i suppose a a, a different backdrop than the one we're used to but sam actually i'd be quite interested on your take on this because there are moments with the characters where sometimes they're really detailed but other times they just look a bit flat and a bit cheap and there's a i think there's a moment after mulan has just kind of climbed um to get the arrow at the very top of the log and it kind of zooms back in on her face and it just doesn't quite it just looks a bit cheap is but i i know that they were inspired by specific art but that seems a little bit like they were trying to cut costs or something what do you think yeah it's an uneasy marriage i think is what it is because we're trying to translate the design sensibilities of eastern art into the animation style of disney in a way that doesn't quite gel and when you look at something like a girl worth fighting for or a much that the recent example, that Princess Kaguya, the Ghibli film, which which does a similar thing with with Japanese in quash art, those character designs are less detailed, but the whole thing is much more overtly stylized. And I think people said a similar thing about Gerald Scarf's designs in Hercules as well, which I really like, which I know you really like as well. But it's like they work well on the page, and the effects are mixed when you translate them into this hyper-realist Disney style. It's it's an uneasy marriage, is I think, what's what's happening. And, I mean, certainly, I'm sure there will have been points on all of these films where they had to dial back on things to cut the costs, but it's those two things not quite gelling. And when they go all in, in A Girl Worth Fighting For, in something like Princess Kaguya, it works. But when they're trying to meet in the middle, mm. it, it, it looks jarring. I think that is true, yeah. In general, yes, obviously, if they made this film today they would have had a lot more Chinese, Chinese-American representation behind the scenes, 100%. And this is part of this middle period of like Disney's approach to cultural representation where they are 
going to these places, they are doing a lot of research, which really started on Aladdin, especially in Pocahontas, like we are putting in the legwork here to learn about these cultures, but we're not necessarily listening to people from these cultures or involving them really directly. In Pocahontas, all the voice actors were indigenous. In this, I would say about 75% of the cast are Asian American or Asian, but then we've got characters like Yao, played by Harvey Feistein, or the matchmaker, played by Miriam Margulies, who are obviously not. I certainly would not suggest that this is good enough because it obviously isn't when it comes to behind-the-scenes representation, but it's progression. Although, in a sense, it's not. It's regression. I've said this before when we're talking about the Romney representation in Hunchback of Notre Dame as well. It's like there seems to be a sense of, okay, these cultures are important to try and be authentic to. Obviously, Native American culture, Indigenous culture was something that felt like they should try and be faithful to, even though that ended up being a very problematic film. So then when they don't go to that lens in films like this, where they stop short of, of trying to cast all Asian voice actors, it's like, well, why? Why does this culture matter less than this culture? Why does authenticity here matter less than it did there? Yeah, I mean, the other thing for me, in terms of where this film starts, which is an attack from the Huns and from Shan Yu, the leader of the Huns, I don't know anything really about the the political or historical background of this, but the Huns themselves have, like, grey skin and glowing yellow eyes, and Shan Yu has, like, claws and fangs, and I'm like, I don't know if this feels okay they're being presented obviously to the audience as like these guys are the villains they have been dehumanized through that design but i don't know the political or historical context to know like is is that okay is that does that feel all right yeah i felt on the outside watching this as a viewer going like it's an entertaining film and well put together and there's lots of really enjoyable stuff in the way that it interprets Chinese art and the landscapes and stuff but there were elements where I was like I don't know how okay this feels. Yeah the Huns have this very like bestial inhuman quality and I think they've decided that that's okay to do because that's quite far removed from any contemporary culture. Obviously there are people today who are descendants of the Huns but the Huns as an ethnicity is kind of that's broadly considered to be extinct I believe. Then when it comes to the Chinese characters, they are generally more human, with the exception of... The, the one that really leaps out to me is Shifu, the emperor's assistant concierge character. That is the character who looks the most like a kind of Yellow Peril-era caricature. You know, James Hong's doing his thing, the voice actor. No disrespect to him whatsoever. He's an absolute legend. He's having a real moment at the minute with everything everywhere all at once. I think he's great. But the way they've chosen to draw that character feels like it's from like wartime anti-Asian propaganda, you know? And I think it's interesting that that is the character who is the most representative of what Mulan is struggling against. Like, Shan Yu, the leader of the Huns, is the villain. But really, the most direct antagonist to Mulan in the entire film is Shifu. He is the character who represents what we see as outdated, outmoded gender ideologies that Mulan's pushing against. And I think it's interesting that he is the character who is most overtly caricatured. And I think similarly, the song You Bring Honor to Us All, which is the song that embodies those ideas, that's the song that is most overtly influenced by traditional Chinese music. So they seem to be setting up in this way 
China as an other against which the contemporary liberal American values embodied by Mulan can be juxtaposed. You see what I mean? And that they do this in a similar way in Aladdin. They do this in Pocahontas. They do this in Beauty and the Beast. And I think when we talked about that movie, we, we looked at that from like a class lens of like Belle is liberal versus these like peasants, these villagers who are who are conservative. So that's a real trend going on in this era. And I think this is a trope that can be read as evidence of like a bit of an American superiority complex. Even if we broadly agree with the liberal views being espoused here, we obviously agree that women should be treated equally to men. We sympathise a lot with what Mulan represents, but also, like in a lot of ways, contemporary and historical cultures are conflated when it comes to representing indigenous Middle Eastern Chinese people in like mainstream American media. So this does feel like a bit of a pernicious convention that's coming into play in these in these disney films these cultures are wrong contemporary american cultures are right these cultures are outmoded are, are sexist or misogynist etc and we are right the american values embodied by the quote-unquote princess characters are what are true and correct do you see what i mean i think that's what's at the heart of it here yeah absolutely well let's get into mulan as a character is absolutely great. Rihanna, what did it mean for you being a 90s Disney kid to have action heroines like Mulan on the screen? Did you gravitate towards Mulan as a kid? I really did. I remember going to the cinema with my dad to see this. He was quite keen to take me as well. I guess he was probably quite keen for me to go and see any film which had a sort of non-white heroine at the centre of it in that era because I guess there weren't loads that was quite a a nice thing for me and my dad to go and see and I think he was quite a big fan of Eddie Murphy as well so that would have been a big pull for him even if he hadn't realised I don't think my dad did like research that much (laughs) in in advance but I think that was something that he quite enjoyed afterwards yeah I really love Moolah I think she's incredibly composed and you know the decisions that she makes at the beginning very much for her family which comes out even more I think in the live action film they kind of give that a little bit more space but yeah just watching her father struggle knowing that she would never see him again if he did go to war that he would not survive that's a huge thing that's a kind of huge undertaking for somebody who is seen as kind of hapless and possibly like the disappointment the black sheep of the family that's a huge thing for her to undertake and she's doing that not to kind of prove anything but purely just to save her father there is a kind of similar element isn't there like with Pocahontas as well that father-daughter relationship where you know, she, she kind of wants to do anything to protect her family. And it is very much seen as sort of us and them. Yeah. I think it's really interesting considering Mulan in that sort of lineage of 90s Disney princesses, I guess, is the wider brand of that. This feels like a little bit of a twist on the formula for me. I don't know if you guys agree, but because Mulan, when we see her at the beginning and she is meeting the matchmaker and she's kind of being prepared for this kind of matchmaking process, we see that she wants to be good at this stuff. We've had a lot of Disney princesses. You look at Belle, she wants more than this provincial life. We see Jasmine, who wants to be able to kind of leave. She wants to rebel against her dad. We have had a lot of rebellious female Disney characters. Mulan doesn't want to rebel. Like, she wants to be good at the matchmaking stuff for for herself, for her family. She's not trying to rebel, but she's trying to reconcile the fact that she's just not good at that. 
with the fact that there's a lot of pressure on her to to do those things and she's not very good at it the stuff that she is good at is gonna be seen as dishonorable but the decision that she makes even though at the end there's that moment where she's like maybe i didn't do this for my father i'm like i think you did do this for your father um you did this for good reasons and you really tried to be good at the stuff that your family wanted you to be good at. I thought that was just an interesting, like, extra wrinkle on the character that we haven't necessarily had with other 90s female Disney characters. Yeah, and just in general, that relationship is getting a lot healthier as well between the the father and daughter compared to, you know, Ariel and Triton, they are kind of reconciled at the end of that movie, but Triton is really an antagonistic force in that film for most of it. Um, Sultan is kind of useless in Aladdin. He's being, like, manipulated and stuff, but he's still a bit of an obstruction to what Jasmine wants in that film. And, yeah, Pocahontas, I feel like they're closer But then in this movie, it's like, yeah, just really healthy father-daughter relationship. They have arguments, but she wants what he wants. And maybe he doesn't go too hard on, you need to find a husband to bring honor to us all, etc. That's like the women in Mulan's life. That's a mother to a much lesser extent, a grandmother. And then just all of these other women who are involved in that matchmaking sequence who who are putting that pressure on. But that never quite seems where it's coming from from her father. He chastises her when she tries to stop him being conscripted. But I think that's coming from his position of, of pride in himself and in his own capabilities and not wanting to admit that he's kind of past it and that he can't do what's expected of him. We never really find out what she wants in relation to men. You know, we have no idea actually if she wants to get married or not, do we? That's not ever really explored. It's such a quick kind of opening the matchmaking scene is brilliant and it's so funny and it's what a brilliant introduction to her as a character and the kind of the physicality of the movie and the lucky cricket and all of you know these these like really (laughs) fun little bits which actually in the long term aren't you know necessary but it's brilliant comic value but we don't actually get a chance to learn about what her motivations are except the whole idea of honor and her family and the ancestors we see very clearly that lineage coming through from her father going again to pray and all of that kind of stuff and she's you know like you said she's trying to swat up she's got it written on her arm she is trying to do the best that she can but we don't know if it's because she wants to find a man or if it's just because anything for a quiet life and she wants to honor her family yeah I love the lucky cricket in this movie. The lucky cricket in the tea at the matchmaking oh sequence. Oh my god. Like a little hot dog. <laughs> oh, when he's chilling in the cup of tea. Oh man, that's so good. I want to live that life. I want to just feel that relaxed. <laughs> also, it just felt like a real like mid-90s thing of that. Reminded me of the newt in Matilda. There was a real oh, yeah, like yeah, crop yeah. of just little guys <laughs> in drinks that caused people to freak out. <laughs> everybody i I remember being obsessed with the newt in matilda i think that was the first time i've ever heard of a newt (laughs) (laughs) new reptile just dropped (laughs) and we have since learned sam that the newt plays the flute so it all comes back to disney (laughs) absolutely can i tell you a little story about cricky Oh, please do. Derail this further with a a Cricky story. So Cricky was created by Joe Grant, who was a 90-year-old man who was a veteran of Disney who had worked there since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He had been 
there for like the entirety of this company's existence as a film studio. And apparently Joe Grant and Michael Eisner, the, the CEO of Disney, were the only people who wanted Cricky in the movie. The directors didn't want him there. They thought he wasn't necessary. No. They were, every time someone started talking about, but what does what's Cricky doing in this scene? People would be like, <laughs> we do not want to hear about Cricky. We don't want to think about this. Um, and Joe Grant would apparently slip a sketch of Cricky under the director's office door every few days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. This 90-year-old man just cheekily being like, that. look, this one will win them round. Look, look at what Cricky's doing here. It's so funny, isn't it? Because it's that whole idea of, oh, what's the point of Cricky? But it's a kid's film. Like, you know, you could. Uh, what's the point of any of it? But the, the point is that it's fun and it's entertaining and it's adorable and it's just, and it's a foil to Eddie Murphy. It's like, you know, I've yeah. heard it's kind of described as like the R2-D2 CP3O relationship where you've got, you know, one character translating for the other. And, I, you know, I think that's, that's really lovely because you get a lot more Eddie Murphy being Mushu and being hilarious because of his relationship with Cricky. If it was just with Mulan, it would be a bit too wacky and it wouldn't necessarily work with what the hell she's got going on, which is a <laughs> lot more than what Cricky's got going on. But I also love that they've given him a, like a little bit of a personality just from the off, just with the grandmother, the whole idea of him being a lucky cricket, but actually being terrified when she crosses the road. Like I think they do a really good job of animating him to a point that he doesn't need to speak. We get his personality. Uh, it's a really good like silent, animation yeah. performance it reminded me of like snoopy and woodstock yeah. from the peanut stuff, or, like, or like grommet almost yeah like we get so much personality through because he is a cricket and therefore he's always going to be a little bit cartoonified because you couldn't just draw realistic cricket that found that out we're back in pinocchio yeah. you've got to give it a bit of more of a cartoon personality so he is so expressive and yeah he works really well and he's another character that between him and mushu and mulan you have all these characters who can't live up to the thing they're supposed to be and yeah. are all trying yeah. to work towards that. I think it has like a little thematic element. So I, I'm pro Cricky and just love that all the way through the making of this movie, there was a guy in the room who was like, <laughs> when Cricky is not on screen, audiences should always be asking, where's Where Cricky? <laughs> Everyone else was saying when Cricky is on screen, people should be asking, why is Cricky here? <laughs> Justice for Cricky. <laughs> when will Cricky's reflection show who Cricky is inside? That's the thing. He he has this, yeah, he has this role to live up to. Everyone in the movie does. It, it's a movie about performativity. Mm. Uh, Mushu is trying to perform as a, a guardian. He's, he puts on various masks and shadow, he does the shadow puppetry thing. He's always trying to push himself as the, the big, strong guardian. All of the men in the movie, every single male character, maybe apart from the villains, is overtly performing their gender in the same way that Mulan has to perform her gender and their gender it's it's a movie about performance it's a movie about living up to what is expected of you exactly and it's good to have little microcosms of that and Cricky's a perfect example yeah let's get into that on Mulan's side of things because that begins really even with the matchmaking sequence with the makeup that she puts on the almost geisha style makeup and we have that great bit in Reflection the song where she kind of wipes half the makeup off her face and so we've got half no makeup on half with the makeup on and she's kind of questioning who she's supposed to be she has this like malleable identity the fact that she already has that that she just already has roles she's putting on means that when she passes herself off as ping to join the military she is just doing what she's always done in terms of putting on a performance rather than feeling like she can just be herself it's just another mask that she has to put on what do we make of Ping as a version of Mulan and of that journey for her as a character where she is 
yeah, I, I guess trying to pass herself off as a different gender and what that means for, for the story. Well, Reflection is such a like a beautiful ballad and it just kind of really sums up how we all felt growing up where we didn't necessarily see in the mirror who we really felt that we were internally or, you know, we could never quite, with all that sort of teenage awkwardness or, you know, it was like we were always still finding ourselves until much later, I think. In, it's only like now, really, in my 30s that I feel really comfortable with who I am. So I think that that song in particular does a great job and it's such a great introduction to how we are always hiding a bit of ourselves. It takes a lot for us to really portray that. And so it's just another layer that she's putting. It feels like she can't 100% be herself, right? In the With the matchmaker scene and, and with Ping, it's just yet another layer of not being herself, just having to hide who she truly is. Ping is great because, again, it's like she's never met a man. So she's taking advice from a dragon on how to walk <laughs> as a man, on how to talk as a man, how to name herself as a man. She has not thought this through. If Mushu hadn't gone with what was she gonna do well how was she gonna present herself <laughs> yeah i love when mushu's kind of talking from the back of her neck to <laughs> yeah. give her the ideas and it's like as you you've already brought up sam jiminy cricket in this episode it's like mushu is like a dumbass version of jiminy cricket who just has like no good suggestions uh, but he's always in mulan's ear trying he's like to give cracking her himself up isn't he as well which i love <laughs> Yeah, Ping is really interesting and what Ping means to Mulan is really interesting because Reflection as a song intrigues me like compared to the other I Want songs, it's very vague. Part of Your World, that's an incredibly specific song. Ariel has lots of very specific things that she wants out of life and that kind of changes, it changes from part of their world to part of your world as it becomes more specifically about Eric. But then like Go the Distance and Hercules, Out There and Hunchback, they're quite specific songs. I think this one is just vague enough that we don't know exactly what Mulan wants and I don't know if she knows what she wants because it's like is this a song about she wants her outer body to be able to reflect who she actually is or is this a song about I want to change who I am so that I can be who everybody wants me to be and I think as we've already alluded to it can easily be read as both because she wants to please her family she wants to be what they want her to be but she also is not that and she wants to be able to be herself as well so I think she's conflicted so it raises the question like when in the movie does her reflection ultimately show who she is inside and it's not when she's ping right she is never comfortable as ping and that's funny it's usually played for laughs but this is not a movie about a woman who wants to live like a man does who wants to do everything that a man can do i think mulan is most comfortable and most victorious in the film when she is in that middle ground of like she is you know at the end of the movie in the final climax she looks like a woman she dresses like a woman but she is still getting involved in the action she's still putting herself out there she's not dressed up as she is when she's she's at the matchmakers so it's like yeah when when does her reflection show who she is inside it's not as a traditional woman it's not as a man it's in that in-between space at the end I think there's that bit, so it's kind of hinted at when she is playing with little brother and she wants him to feed the chickens because she can't be arsed or she's too busy or whatever she's got going on that morning. She's got the matchmaker to deal with. That's what she's got going on. So she, you know, ties the bone to him and ties some seed to his back. And that kind of encapsulates then what we see going forward because she has all of these really interesting 
ideas. Yeah. She's kind of, it's not about the physicality of Ping. We know that from the minute that she walks out as Ping, that it's, she's never going to nail that. And that's not what she needs to do. Ping, you know, there is a lot of brute strength in that army and that's not what Ping is there for. Ping is there to provide these different ideas to think outside the box. That's what Mulan Ping does all the way through the film is to come up with these really unusual techniques of how to mentally beat whatever's coming rather than physically right which is why i love how she develops that and i love that it's kind of the face of ping that does it you know in the mountains and that she fools shan yu especially but he doesn't see ping as a man or woman he just says the soldier from the mountain yeah and i really loved that he doesn't at that moment gender ping or Mulan. It's just about the the fact that a, a soldier did this to him, the downfall. He doesn't seem to care. That's why I said before I think Shifu is, is more of an antagonist yeah. in this movie as he is. He's like an external force. He's doing his own thing. Shifu is the, the face of misogyny in the film in a way that Shan Yu isn't really. But yeah, that is the core of Mulan's character is her intelligence. She's a lateral thinker. In Girl Worth Fighting For, she interrupts the song and says like, I want a girl who has a brain, yeah. who always speaks her mind. <laughs> Yeah, that that's what makes her different. That's what makes her stand out. That's the part of her that isn't compatible with the matchmaker's version of what a woman should be. And that's something that initially she's not able to express as Ping either because she's subservient. And she has to, even if this character was a man, this character would still have to go against Shang's orders, for example, in that battle in the mountains, in order to demonstrate their intelligence. So that is kind of what's at the core of her and that's what she has to demonstrate and that's why she's not comfortable in in either of these societies that require her to be subservient. Just both genders in this movie are required to be subservient in different contexts. So it's not about being Mulan, it's not about being Ping, it's about being independent. Yeah, and I think that comes through because her independence, her lateral thinking, the stuff that makes Mulan Mulan remains ultimately ungendered because when she is ping and when she's with those other soldiers she's like the way to be a man is just to be a doofus all of these guys are absolute doofuses and i love that her version of being a man is just going oh yeah i'll uh, swing, swing my sword around but not a deep voice <laughs> but that is reflected by the men that she's surrounded by in the camp when she's joined the army really the one man who seems to have a bit of both going on having the strength but having the thinking as well is everybody's favorite lee shang and uh, <laughs> yeah we, we, we're getting a whoop whoop for, for lee shang there which is basically mulan's reaction when she sees him too i love there's like basically a crash zoom on her face when he yeah. they make a big deal of him just taking his robe off oh. and he's just like pure muscle and it's just like boom straight in on mulan she's like whoop. so sam you're saying in reflection it's like what does she want does she want to be a... it's like she knows what she wants when lee shang takes that robe off yeah, that's why that answers your question, Rihanna, of what relationship does she want with man? She wants a relationship with this man. God, who doesn't know? Blimey, like when he does, when he takes off his shirt, it's incredible. People always talk about Robin Hood being, you know, an early crush. Actually, it's Li Shang. That body is amazing, drawn or not. Um, actually, in reality, I think I would not be attracted to that. But just in the space of this film, it's, I think maybe you know, because up against somebody like Yao, who oh, I love that Yao takes the myth out of him for taking his <laughs> shirt off he's like you're a pretty boy i could do this with my shirt on you know like it's, <laughs> i love that they're, they're already dividing up what men look like and how they should behave and they're already like rivalries i think that's really funny 
what I was saying before as well, like that everyone in this film is performing. This film deals with restrictions affecting men and women. I think when we talked about Beauty and the Beast, I mentioned that Beauty and the Beast is more of a film about masculinity than it is about femininity. Mm. And I feel like this movie obviously starts off being about femininity and ends with a kind of reconciliation of a sort. But for a lot of it, it is about masculinity. It's about what it means to be a man. The best Disney song ever is about what it means to be a man. Be a man. <laughs> exactly. It shouts the words, be a man, <laughs> at regular intervals. So we know that it's about what it is to be in a man. And Shang is, is part of that. There are restrictions placed on Shang. Shang has to live up to what his father expects of him or his idea of what his father expects to him. Those are the standards he holds himself to. He's got to restrain his kind of true desires and emotions at points in this as well i thought it's interesting that his kind of mantra when he's given them the weights to climb the log and he says like one of these is discipline and one of these is strength it's like, okay that's like the core of like shang's version of, of masculinity and then that's quite similar to what mulan has to recite for the matchmaker fulfill your duties calmly and respectfully reflect before you act this shall bring you honor and glory that's what she has to say it's like okay so the the restrictions being placed on men and women are very different in a lot of ways, but in other ways they are similar. It's about discipline, it's about strength, or a version of, of strength, but in particular discipline. And it, it's again, it's this idea of both men and women deserve independence from the gender binary. And I think, obviously, all of, like, Yao especially is the ultimate version of that. Like, he is the character who was really going out of his way to perform masculinity, and I think it's telling that he is voiced by gay icon Harvey Firestein, yes. who is... <laughs> very much not that and elements of that come through there's some quite camp line deliveries from Yao in this film as well so it's subverting versions of gender performance all the way through to an extent and we'll talk about ways in which it doesn't necessarily ultimately subvert it later on but yeah fascinating stuff this feels like an appropriate point as well just to say we haven't mentioned so far Mulan voiced by Ming-Na Wen who is so great. I love Ming-Na Wen. She is Fennec Shand in the Mandalorian era of Star Wars at the moment. She was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She does a lot of like big action-y stuff. I think this role really suits her and everything Ming-Na Wen stands for. I think that the casting is interesting. Also, Lee Shang, uh, voiced by B.D. Wong, who mm. is in the Jurassic movies. He was the scientist uh, with the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. And then they brought him back in this big arc in the recent Jurassic films where it's like, he's a mad scientist mixing DNA. But he's a very good Lee Shang. He is. And he's able to convey emotion without conveying emotion. You know, he's not supposed to, right? He's supposed to be incredibly, like like Mulan, I suppose, you know, composed. And uh, even when his father is killed in battle, he has to kind of like pull together every ounce of strength that he has to keep leading. And it's a real kind of push-pull. There's a real kind of internal tug of war going on there because he obviously, all he wants to do just from there's that scene with him and his father, it's a very, very short scene but you can tell just how much he is desperate for his father to think that he is worthy, which is very similar to Mulan. So they, despite them seeming to come from very different backgrounds and having kind of different things going on in their lives they have so much in common which is about honoring their family honoring their fathers in particular but i think that bd wong does just a, a really beautiful job of balancing that i love him i think yeah. he's great i love lee shang just because he's completely useless as a romantic hero as well <laughs> <laughs> you seem even a bit flustered talking about lee shang now i'll be honest <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I've just been reminded recently of how much I love him. I should have a poster of him on my wall, really. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of kind of homoeroticism as well. Like there is a, at least that element of that, right? You know, it's with Ping, he sort of, there's a moment where he kind of puts his hand on his shoulder and it's, that's not sexualized. That's uh thank you for being here, friend. But it's, uh you kind of see it gradually. You see his respect build up and you, you're just like, you're going to have sex. You're definitely going to have sex, but you just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like that's been a part of the wider legacy of this film of and of yeah. Li Shang as a character of like how much is he into Ping before he finds out Ping is Mulan and, and what what is that relationship there? That feels like something that still gets talked about now. Yeah, and my stance on that in these older movies is always like if that makes you happy, that is excellent and you're free to read this character as whatever you want. I'm wary of giving Disney too much credit for including a bisexual character <laughs> oh, in a movie didn't. in the 1990s. They definitely didn't. I don't like to think, because he is not happy to be attracted to Mulan. I think if he is attracted to Mulan, if he is attracted to Ping, he's not chuffed with that. <laughs> he's almost relieved, I think, when he finds out that, that it was a woman sure. all along to an extent. And, you know, just because Disney is still... Strange World is a leap, but Disney is still so, so bad at queer representation that I am always hesitant to give them any kind of props whatsoever. You do not, uh, under any circumstances, got to hand it to them when it comes to queerness. But uh, if people get something out of Li Shang being a bisexual icon, as I've heard him described, then that's fine. That's good for them. But he's not for me, I don't think. Well, on the subject of Li Shang and Mulan and the soldiers and all of this, let's talk about the songs. And when I say the songs, let's specifically talk about <laughs> I'll Make a Man Out of You. Sam, like, we oh. barely even began this podcast oh. and you had, like, thrown down the mic. <laughs> you dropped that mic saying this is the best Disney song ever. And Okay, I don't think I 100% agree with you, but it is so good and that sequence is great and i was watching this with lizzie my wife and she turned to me halfway through the song was like this is the best disney song and i was like yeah (laughs) it's really really good and it's a weird one right because often the big disney songs tend to be either a massive ballad like a big soaring ballad or an outright like big pop banger this is a mid-tempo song. This is like an unusual big Disney song. And yet it absolutely rules. And when he sings <laughs> the dark side of the, the moon, moon. Like, full body chills. <laughs> full body chills. I mean, I have so much to say about this song. <laughs> so, okay, where do I start? One, this song means a lot to me. This song has been a massive part of my life. We used to have, as I'm sure many teens did, uh, a lot of house parties growing up in like college and uni. Every single house party we threw with me and my mates, this song would come on <laughs> at around like two o'clock, like kind of the, the peak of the night. Well, I would put this song on specifically. <laughs> oh, this song would mysteriously come would... <laughs> on. Who knows who put the song on at the party at 2am? <laughs> I would always put this on at every single party we had and it would go off and everybody knew all the words and just like a room of 20 Magans singing along to I'll Make a Man Out of You. And then when it gets to the chorus, we all knew who was doing Be a Man and who was doing It Must Be Swift as the Coursing River. There was a great bit where when, when Mulan does Hope He Doesn't See Right Through Me. All the ladies in the room take that line. It was just... <laughs> Were just... they silent up until that point? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we all, we all did it. But it was very... It was, there was gender parity in these sing-alongs. But um, this song is the soundtrack for 
almost all of the best nights of my teenage <laughs> life. Oh, that's so awesome. I love that. What, what yeah. about you, Rihanna? Does this hold a similar place for you? Have you listened to this at 2am at a house party before? Do you know what? I, I don't think I have. I don't think my friends were as cool as yours, Sam. Um, but, I... <laughs> but Honestly, shouts out to the time that we are massive. 2K9, you're my guys. <laughs> I had a Disney uh, playlist which I listened to all through my late teens and 20s and this was always one of my favourites that came on because it's just so much fun. I mean it's sung by Donny Osmond which is I always forget and it always blows my mind every time I remember but it's just I think because the training montage is such a brilliant one you go on such a journey not only with ping but also the rest of the soldiers i kind of love that it's this group team effort you really get a sense of who they are the fact that they're all really quite frightened i think is really important because it's so often that it's like the fish out of water is our Mm -hmm. hero or our heroine but actually they all are none of them are prepared for this and this song is just such a kind of brilliant indictment of just how mad like conscription is really the fact that you have people who don't know how to swim like having to kind of fight these wars where they will have to be thrown into these horrific conditions and i like the idea of them cutting gym at school in this era <laughs> of china like all of i think that it's so evocative the writing and it does kind of remind me of pocahontas if you're talking about the coursing river and and mm. you know that's a big point of around the river bend and everything about this song i love and i love the montage i love the journey it's really empowering. It's a really empowering song. And the irony about, did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? Is yes. a great line. Well, that's what, again, makes it fascinating to me because this is one of several songs that we've talked about so far on the podcast. We've talked about this with Under the Sea and Hakuna Matata in particular, where these are incredible, hugely entertaining songs where the message of the song runs contrary to the message of the movie like this is putting forward a version of masculinity that the movie will ultimately deconstruct mm-hmm. and as you say this is a song about people being conscripted none of these people are comfortable with it even Yao who sees himself as, as the embodiment of masculinity is suddenly very much emasculated when this song kicks in because my man you might be strong but you are not strong as the, the Corson River mm. or whatever <laughs> you are not mysterious as the dark side of the moon my friend <laughs> so the, the message of this song runs contrary to the message of the movie and actually Actually, this goes for three out of four songs in the film, because mm. that's also true of Girl Worth Fighting For. That's also true of You'll Bring Honor to Us All. And as was said, I think there's an interpretation of reflection where it's true of that as well, but that's vague enough to allow mm. for, for multiple interpretations. So we'll talk more about the role of music in this film a little bit later on and, and the fact that it isn't quite a big blowout musical like a lot of Disney's other films are. But one thing that music is doing in this film is putting forward the voice of the status quo, putting forward the voice of the gender binary and and, and illustrating how that works before the, the final act of the film starts to deconstruct it. And I think musically as well, the things that it's leaning into, kind of like with Pocahontas as well, it's leaning into almost military music as a general yeah. sound. Uh, also, as we've said, the kind of traditional Chinese music as well. It's an interesting, different kind of whole vibe for Disney. It doesn't have that show tunes thing going on that a lot of the Alan Menken, Howard Ashman stuff had. It has elements of that, I think, especially in terms of the characters voicing bits of their fears or feelings through these songs 
just the sort of music that it is, it feels like a different set of Disney songs. And as you say, it's kind of not a full-fledged musical. It feels a bit more like, yeah, one of those 70s films where they're like, I guess Disney films should have songs in, uh, but mm. it's not like a full-on musical. And at a certain point, the songs quite literally stop when they're singing A Girl Worth Fighting For, and it is, that is probably the most kind of military-sounding song. It has the sort of drums, and it's sort of like a lads going off to war song, singing about kind of... Oh, the women that they'll be returning home to and then the song stops the music dies they encounter the aftermath of this village having been burned and they see the real kind of horrors of of war and what that means and the music stops and basically stops for the whole film Mm. from that point on yeah that's powerful isn't it a lot of disney movies do this we've talked about this in the past and it kind of bugs me but a lot of them do like lion king does Little Mermaid pretty much does. Like they they stop at the end when the action kicks in. Aladdin definitely does. There's the little reprise of of Prince Ali from Jafar. But the, the the songs really cut out in the third act, and that's true of a lot of the more recent ones as well. And that has always bugged me a little bit because it's like, well, why not just write a couple more songs? Like you can have you can have a musical about war. You can be Hamilton or Les Mis. Like you know, two of the biggest musicals of all time have battle songs or about war or about conflict like this. And, and Mulan makes the decision not to do that and you know i wish there were more songs in this movie but it does work and it's because of that moment that it works like it's so harsh they see it before you do and then the camera spins and we see this burnt out village the color palette's completely shifted you get these really threatening reds in there all of a sudden it's like oh right we're just titting about singing about the ladies and yeah. this has been going on tonally it's such a shift isn't it because it up until for that moment it's, it's just sex 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 for that whole song that's what they're <laughs> essentially singing about is the fact that they're desperate to get back home and get their end away or whatever it is and we've kind of seen before that in between those two songs i'll make a man out of you and a girl worth fighting for like there are jokes about mulan's breasts from mushu and lots of jokes about like full frontal nudity with all the men getting naked and she never wants to see another naked man again so it's all like super light and then that kind of the realism because we don't see a huge amount of violence before this it's all hinted at when we even when we have the two messengers coming from the general i think he says how many messengers does it take you know to pass on a message sort of thing and they shoot an arrow and kill one of them but that's all sort of done off screen we don't see any of this and that is of course it's a kids film like how are they going to show that but it's still incredibly powerful and using the the rag doll to demonstrate that mass violence especially against children is horrific and it's so effective yeah not only have you got shang's dad is dead but you've got well obviously lots of children are dead specifically we've got this this little girl i mean i, I don't think we need to spend loads of time on shan yu because he's a fairly thin villain like i say he's not he doesn't play a really significant role in the movie he's just there to be the threat but that moment where he's holding the doll and he says like i think there's a little girl who's missing our doll oh. and he gives like a smile it's like oh my, this is a guy who is excited to go and murder yeah, children you're not going to return that doll are you it's just horrifying yeah like as a disney villain he is an enormous threat he's not the most fun character to watch by any stretch but like there are not many disney villains much more sinister than a little girl is missing a doll let's go and kill this little girl so yeah when we know what we're up against but these guys don't quite know it yet they're still messing around and suddenly it's like 
oh yeah, you have to, those things you were singing about, you have to go and do that now. So not only does the music stop at that point, and we have that really haunting sequence in the burned out village, but really it's like they swapped the songs for action at that point, because then we get this huge spectacular battle sequence. And as we said earlier, Sam, in the context sequence, Barry Cook, one of the directors here, was a major kind of voice in effects animation. And this battle is so spectacular. I think the scope and the scale and thinking that we were at this point still a couple of years away from Lord of the Rings and seeing that moment where like the whole Hun army rises at the top of the hill and they all start to kind of run down the mountain and you have those shots kind of sweeping in around the soldiers i was like whoa i'm really genuinely properly gripped i think especially watching it this time i really felt caught up in the action sequence for some reason it really felt like a massive step up in terms of scope and spectacle from the studio yeah when you look at what they're able to do with computer generated human characters now which is what the huns are in that sequence like that is the equivalent of the stampede sequence in lion king where they've just animated a bunch of characters and then given them random paths to follow and multiplied them by a hundred to create this sense of a horde but when you compare it to when they try to do that with humans in Hunchback of Notre Dame and it looked extremely robotic, it's really successful here. You don't get really close-up shots of any of the computer models, but it does the job that it has to do, which is convince you that there's this enormous advance in army that's going to be completely insurmountable. And you can see Ping, you know, when Ping is sort of just forging the, her path up alone, and you just see her on the just the very, very edge, if you're looking at it from the Hun's perspective, and that, the kind of magnitude, the, the difference between them is, oh gosh, it's really heartbreaking, actually, because you, you, you really feel for the this tiny army who, as we said, are not trained well enough compared to the Huns. You kind of think, what hope do they have? And this is what Ping thinks as well. And nature comes to the rescue, which is, again, what's so lovely about this. Nature and Ping's ingenuity to shoot the mountain with the cannon. And that's the thing, this the trade-off of this sequence, you have this really thrilling battle sequence, and you feel, I think you feel the danger because that begins with Li Shang getting shot by an arrow immediately. It's like, oh my god, he's taken an arrow to the shoulder, he's down. And so you have this really dangerous feeling action sequence, and then it's a great solution to cause the avalanche to get the snow to help them out but then that creates like a secondary part to this sequence i love action sequences that kind of develop from one thing to another and that's kind of what this is it goes from a battle to like a survival sequence with the avalanche especially when we see that they're being swept over the side of a cliff sam there's always a cliff there's always a waterfall in these movies this time it's a cliff and an avalanche that people are getting swept up in and yeah it was proper genuine cliffhanger stuff not that i necessarily believe that an arrow tied to a piece of rope can lift up a horse (laughs) and several people but i just want everything to be okay in that moment so i will buy it i will go with it it can if shen po is the one pulling the rope because he is an absolute unit (laughs) he is that scene as well has one of my favorite comedy moments i think of all time where muchu thinks that he's pulling out cricket and he's pulling out one of the Huns and he just puts him back it just makes me laugh so much every time I don't know why (laughs) visually it's such a great gag I actually, when I was a kid, I used to be really frightened in that moment. <laughs> I, I, I never used to laugh when he pulled the guy up. I was like, ah, who's this? 
really adds into that like C-3PO, R2-D2 dynamic with Mushu <laughs> and uh, Cricky as well, where it's like, he's always having to look out for it. They're always having to look out for each other in amongst these situations that neither of them really should be involved in. Yeah, um, yeah I, I thought that sequence was excellent and really was probably the most impressive action sequence we've had in any Disney film so far, Sam. Just, it is set up as an action set piece and it really delivers on that front beyond just like having emotional involvement it was like pure pure spectacle in a way that i thought was really impressive i've realized we haven't really talked mushu that much so let's let's talk a bit of mushu because this is eddie murphy as as you mentioned rihanna and this is basically donkey before donkey do do you think sam we've talked a lot about jeffrey katzenberg through this podcast do you think jeffrey katzenberg is watching mulan having just left disney and is going we should pinch Eddie Murphy at some point. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. I would say he's smarter than Donkey. He's not super smart. He's smarter than Donkey, and he's more, like, selfish than Donkey. Donkey is a very giving character, I think. Donkey wants to help people, and Mushu, for a lot of this movie, just wants to help himself. So I think it's slander to compare my beloved Donkey to, <laughs> to Mushu. No, I like I like Mushu a lot, but he's, uh, he's not as pure of heart as I think Donkey is. He is, as we discussed in Hercules, where like every character is trying to be the Robin Williams genie character. This, they go, okay, just one character should be the genie in this one, and it is Eddie Murphy as Mushu. I, I, I like that they pared it down. It feels very much in that lineage of, let's get a big name star, get them to do their thing, let's animate around that performance. I'm thinking especially the moment where Mushu is introducing himself to Mulan, and we see his shadow being projected on the wall, and his shadow is kind of twisting and convulsing and he looks so much bigger than he is and that feels like a sort of genie-esque move where the the kind of character is reflecting the voice performance and then the extra gag is he walks out and he's tiny (laughs) very much here for Mushu I love that bit with his shadow where actually his eyes apparently are completely transparent so because you can (laughs) see the light through his eyes which always makes me laugh as a little animation weird blip (laughs) but also when I was re-watching it I was thinking you know the whole idea was it was supposed to be the great stone dragon that was supposed to go and help Mulan on her journey. What would the film have looked like if it had been the great stone dragon? Like, what would that have done for Mulan? That's what I... I can't quite get my head around what it what this was supposed to be doing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what is the great stone dragon? Does the great stone dragon just decimate the entire whole yeah. army? Because he sounds pretty badass. In which case, brilliant. And uh, Mushu does a terrible job of that. But I love... I think Mushu is, br- is such a great character for kids and for adults because you do have a little bit of the Eddie Murphy humour because he's so fast talking and looks brilliant you know that kind of little flash of red every time you know exactly who he is I love him as a character because he's quite naughty but also he kind of really falls in love with Mulan like he really wants to look after her he keeps calling her my girl and Mm. yes he is very much out for himself by the way I love Donkey from Shrek but I do find him a lot less annoying he's supposed to be less annoying than Donkey and and more intelligent you're right and you're kind of rooting for him and I'm like yeah so what he got one of the far family beheaded and what you know move on <laughs> let's all put him back on that pedestal yeah my favorite mushu joke 
is when he calls the horse a cow. Yes! I find that really funny. It's <laughs> <a> down, Bessie. <laughs> it says, dishonour on you, dishonour on, on your cow. cow. <laughs> and then later on, when they're all confessing, he says, and what are you, a sheep? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's really brilliant. We used to say down, Bessie, all the time. That was like our little like, weird in joke. Whenever we started to get too like rowdy with each other, me and my mate would just be like, down, Bessie. Yeah, I think that it's kind of a comic, it's comic genius and it's really necessary in Mulan because she doesn't get to do so much of the comedy as the film goes on. She's kind of relegated very much to the straight character, which is weird considering that she is cross-dressing. Normally we would associate that with humour, but um, that all falls to Eddie Murphy. So that brings us nicely into the final act of this film, which is the face-off with the Huns at the Emperor's palace it's a really impressive location for that final battle uh, that really great moment where the huns reveal themselves skulking on the roof during this massive celebration where they think the battle has been won but really the huns have survived they've clawed themselves out of the snow in a very horrorish sequence they're like <laughs> zombies clawing themselves out of the ground uh, especially with all that gray gray skin yeah this is the moment where sam i think we do see the real mulan she has kind of literally let her hair down she is using all the skills at her disposal her kind of more physical action prowess that she's learned through this incredible training montage and through her experiences training with li shang but she also has that ingenuity and that bravery that put her in that position in the first place we see all of those things come together and we also see li shang really see her and respect her obviously he re- abandons her on the mountain when she has to reveal her true identity well having been injured they discover that she's not actually uh, a man that she's not really ping but in this sequence at the end he really sees her and sees what she's capable of and really respects that that as you say feels like the ending here her getting the respect from li shang and from the emperor what do you guys make of this final sequence i like it in some ways and in other ways i think this is where the film kind of starts to slightly fall short as a film about gender because if finale the final events are where this film is like really kind of putting its thesis forward and i think that's where it starts to reveal that it's maybe less subversive than it could have been like for example there's this sequence where yao ling and shen po dress as women in order to very briefly seduce the guards like i don't think they really had to do that for this plan to work but that is depicted as comic it's comic when a man dresses as a woman and it's only the comic characters who do dress as women shang does not dress as a woman and again there's no real reason given for that it's just because these guys are funny these guys look funny let's have them dress as women and for that to look funny and also mulan saves the day as mulan and that means it's given us this message that femininity isn't incompatible with heroism which is a great message i think but in doing so i think it also like reinforces this gender binary that was set up at the start because disney do what they always do i'm always banging on about in this podcast and they domesticate the hero at the end like she and this is true of the ballad of mulan this is true of every traditional version of this story she rejects the offer of the emperor and returns to her family and that is, I think, really important to this story in the Chinese tradition because in, in China, this is a story about family. This is a story about her as a daughter, about her respect for her father. That's why she does everything she does. So she returns to the family at the end. And a lot of the original ballad is, is about that reunion. 
but if we are making this movie in America in the modern day and trying to say something genuine about gender, then obviously it feels like it falls slightly short of that when she just decides to go home and return to her domestic duties. And then ultimately it's suggested marry a man and then that's followed through on in Mulan 2, which we'll eventually get to. So yeah, I just I wanted to read out a quote from an academic on this, from uh, Gwendolyn Limbach, who wrote what's really the definitive academic essay about gender in Mulan and the book Diversity in Disney. She says, even though the film seems to celebrate Mulan's liminality and the agency she gains because of her boundary crossing, Disney in fact contains the truly progressive significance of her actions in order to instill its own message of traditional gender roles. That is kind of what's reinforced at the end through the comedy of of the men cross-dressing and through Mulan's ultimate decision, which makes less sense for the version of the story that Disney have been trying to tell up to this point, even if it makes sense for the traditional Chinese version of the story. I wonder what the reaction would have been if they had changed the ending of the ballad of Mulan to make it fit with what we think which is that she should take that position up because again it's not about her strength it's about her thinking so as an advisor about strategy at least you know that's something that she could definitely do as well as have her kind of reunion with her father those aren't you know mutually exclusive which is is kind of frustrating isn't it because you feel like you could get the best of both worlds and I guess it yeah the kind of the Li Shang following her home to her family and has to doesn't know what to say when she's right there in front of him but has to kind of gather the courage but it's because it needs to be a bit more traditional because he needs to meet her family it feels like in order to have this in a kind of more respectful way than something we would do in as a modern audience perhaps yeah and i've got no problem with that relationship i think it's a well-drawn romance compared to other disney romances especially and again that romance isn't necessarily incompatible with a version of this movie that upholds the subversive approach to gender that the rest of the movie has taken but all of it together means that it falls short i think when you you bring the the comedy cross-dressing and the romance and the domesticity together all in one that's where it kind of falls short if it was just one or two of those things yeah i don't think it would have been as bad so yeah good movie but uh could have been better with a little tweak to that ending but I that think. rejection of mulan on the mountain really pisses me off <laughs> <laughs> it really upsets me because she has sacrificed so much for the army she saved their lives and still they leave her cold and alone on a mountain top without anything and i i find that unforgivable really and i'm including lee Chang in that um yeah. I do yeah. find that out and his kind of obstinate you, it's kind of difficult to work out whether he feels personally betrayed or if he's just trying to uphold the standards of the Chinese army and about that betrayal yeah but both the lads want to help though to be fair yeah. the, the, the lads want to get involved but uh, but they're not allowed Shifu stops them so I, I, more respect for them but yeah Li Shang you could do better man and he knows that he's messed up, right? Because he realises what he could have had by the end. And like I said at the beginning, Guy has absolutely no game when Mulan is right there and he just like puts his hand on her shoulder and it's like, God, this is your moment, you go in. And as much as Rihanna's saying, obviously, maybe he is uh, heading back to meet the family out of respect. I also like to think he's realising how badly he's messed up. He's going to run and grovel for Mulan, uh, which again feels like a nice sort of twist on the usual dynamic. And that brings me, I want to close out on my candidate for a Disney versity legend in this film, Sam. 
It could have been Cricky, because Cricky doesn't get talked about that much. I feel like Cricky is an undersung hero in this film. But for me, the real Disney University legend is Mulan's grandma, who is like really <laughs> thirsting after Li Shang at the end of the film. Stay and forever? <laughs> Stay forever. And yeah, and that's the one. Sign me up for the next war as soon as yeah. she sees him. Yeah. Legendary behavior. That's it. I agree with that. I'm glad you went with that. I want to shout out her voice actress, June Foray. June Foray is like the voice actress. She is the most legendary voice actress in American animation. She, I think, probably has the longest career as a Disney voice actor. She hasn't been in loads of Disney's movies, but she was in Cinderella in 1950, and she played Mulan's grandma in 1998 at the age of 80. Amazing. So she, she was she was Lucifer the cat in Cinderella, fantastically. Wow. Was she? Yes. And she kept working until 2014 when she was 96. Wow. She is probably best known as Granny in the Looney Tunes. She played all the female Looney Tunes characters, of which there's not loads, but she played all of them. So Granny from the Sylvester and Tweety cartoons is kind of her signature role, and she kept playing that role until the age of 96. That's incredible. Amazing. Well, can we officially designate Mulan's grandma as a Disneyversity legend? Shall I do the fanfare? Yes, please. <laughs> There she goes, into the canon with all the other undersung Disney heroes. Yeah, I like to think in my own mind that it's her who signed up Stevie Wonder to be the outro song for their party. They're like, Lee Shang's here, let's get Stevie Wonder in. What a weird, incongruous ending. So wild, it's so jarring, and I hate it. That's very DreamWorks, isn't it? That's very that's DreamWorks. Very, that's very Shrek, yeah, yeah, the dance party at the end. I can't hate on Stevie Wonder. It just comes out of absolutely nowhere. It's like, yeah. wait, what? what is this? It makes no sense. <laughs> okay, well, now we've successfully learned how to be a man. That brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make it in. Sam, there are various tellings of Mulan, I imagine. What are the weirdest bits that never, ever would have made a Disney movie? So, as I said before, this goes back to The Ballad of Mulan, which is a folk song dating back to the 5th century. It was written down in the 6th century, and the story is actually extremely similar. It's a lot less detailed and it doesn't have Mushu for example or, or a lot of the characters um, it focuses mostly on before and after the war because it is more of a story about Mulan and her relationship to her family and the decisions that she's making to honour her family to protect her father so the actual war itself is only given two lines basically from when she arrives at the military to mm. the end of the war that's like two lines but it lasts 12 years so that's that's Whoa. kind of paradoxical that a lot more time has taken place but a lot less of it has been presented to us and that's kind of true of most major adaptations going back centuries there's been some cinematic adaptations like all the way through the history of cinema in china there's been versions of mulan like silent versions and everything but certainly a lot of the literary and stage versions allied the military stuff quite substantially so in this version, her comrades only realise she's a woman at the end when she gets home and changes her outfit. That's the biggest difference. Like, she ends the war as a hero. She never gets, like, kicked out of the army. Once again, it's a total Superman thing. It's like, 
Clark Kent versus Superman takes off the glasses, she takes off the armor, and they're like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wait a gosh darn minute. So that is, it's a, it's a very simple, straightforward story in its original form, but it has been adapted many, many times. So for example, if you want a dark, tragic version, you can have the 1695 novel, The Romance of Sui and Tang, which incorporates Mulan's story as part of a broader historical epic narrative. And here, Mulan returns home to find that her father has died, and when the Khan, the ruler of her people, finds that Mulan is a woman, he decides to take her as his concubine, which she is not happy about. It's not, come and join my council, come and be my advisor. It's, you are going to be my woman now. And she goes to her father's grave and slits her throat because she says she'll oh, never be loyal to any crikey. man other than her father. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that is that is a lot darker. Not going to lie. Really glad they didn't do that version. It is. And again, it's that bit at the end. She'll never be loyal to any man other than her father. It's less mm. about... It is still about independence, but compared to the American version, it's it's much less about independence and more about the relationship with the family. It's about what's called filial piety, which is like a, a Confucian principle of children honouring, respecting parents. More fun version, The Complete Account of the Extraordinary Mulan, a novel from around 1800 where she gets a magic camel as a sidekick. Nice. Who has the spirit of a snake. Isn't that cool? The best of both worlds. I can imagine the spirit of the snake kind of fitting neatly through the middle of the camel, like (laughs) the face fitting in the face all the way through to the tail of the camel. But everyone else just sees a camel, but inside... It's a wiggly spirit of a snake. Yeah, so that's a lost Disney sidekick that I feel like we should have had at some point. That's a a missed opportunity for Disney, the camel with the spirit of a snake. And there is a 1901 play called Mulan Joins the Army, and that's where we get the character of Mushu. That's the last significant one that I want to talk about, but Mushu is not a dragon in this. Mushu the dragon, the guardian spirit, that's a Disney invention. But there is a character called Mushu in this play who is Mulan's useless dopey cousin, and I just love that as a character. And he's the one who's supposed to replace her father in the army. He's like next in line. He's the oldest man in the family. But because he's so gosh darn useless, they decide to swap places and Mulan impersonates a man while Mushu impersonates Mulan. And you, you can see why they would do that. It's a play. It's almost like pantomime-esque. There's, again, comedy to be taken from both of these kind of drag performances. Uh, So yeah, there's just a few versions of this. There's been lots of different versions, but those are the ones that I think feel most relevant to uh, the Disney version in one way or another. And interesting that some of these versions seem to be quite playful. It's not like Disney is making a lighter version of something that's very inherently serious? Yeah, there's been lots of different versions with lots of different tones, and that's the case with Hercules as well. So yes, it's perfectly valid to criticise these movies for playing fast and loose and and almost in some ways making fun of the cultural narratives that they're being taken from. But all of these stories have been reproduced so many times for so many different functions with so many different tones that in a way it's not totally invalid to take another approach in the way that Disney have. Okay, so what did critics say at the time about this film? Was it a hit? We've had couple of slightly more middling films. There was that absolutely brutal takedown of Hercules last time. I wonder if there's a similar one for Mulan here. Yeah, did did critics get on board with this film? Well, I wasn't able to find anything on that 
brutal level, but it received mixed reviews. It got solid scores from Roger Ebert from Entertainment Weekly, from Variety, with praise for the story and praise for the female empowerment messaging, which, you know, we've poked some holes in, but it's very much in line with, like, 90s girl power versions of mainstream feminism, anyway. The New York Times and the LA Times, I found their reviews interesting because they both described it as formulaic and manufactured. And that suggests that what we might now describe as the formula or the framework that these Renaissance films have been adhering to, which is very apparent in retrospect, is at this point becoming very apparent to contemporary critics. And Mulan, which now I think we can recognise as certainly an above-average spin on this formula. It's, it's, it's one of the better movies of the Renaissance, with a couple of unique twists even. That is suffering from comparison to these earlier movies, and it's suffering from general fatigue with the repetitious nature of what Disney are doing. And it's not just Disney anymore either, it's people imitating Disney. So since Hercules, we've had both Anastasia and Quest for Camelot come out, which are both attempts to mimic what Disney have been doing with these musicals to varying degrees of success. But the beginnings of this era where you're getting a lot of imitators popping up, that's obviously affecting how unique Disney feels in the broader animation landscape. Yeah, interesting to see other people kind of getting onto their turf, including Katzenberg, you know? Yeah, eventually Prince of Egypt is is very much in that space. And so was that reflected in audiences then? Was this a box office hit or are audiences still... I mean, it's been a bit of a downward slope for a while now. Uh, Are audiences still showing signs of either being tired by Disney or being not as excited by what Disney's doing? It made $120 million domestic and $304 million worldwide. So that's a $50 million improvement on Hercules. And it's a lot more profitable than Hercules because the marketing campaign was far less elaborate. They've dialed back on the absurdly opulent premieres and advertising campaigns. It beats Hunchback domestically, but not worldwide. And it fell short of Pocahontas. So it's a bit of an improvement, but not all the way. It shows that there's still a market there, I think. But it also suggests that the huge profits of the early Renaissance aren't really attainable anymore. But one thing I should point out, weirdly, this is the second highest scored Disney film on Letterboxd. Oh, wow. So a big favourite for audiences today. Yeah, I don't really know exactly what to make of that. Letterboxd has a weird crowd. It's hard to kind of predict what movies are going to get good Letterboxd scores. But yeah, after The Lion King, Mulan is the the second highest rated. So that does say something about what it says to contemporary audiences. And talking about its worldwide reception then, what was the reaction in China? Was China on board with Disney taking on a Chinese story? Did Chinese audiences go for this? And what did Chinese critics have to say about the way that it presents China and Chinese people? It's a weird one. It was a very strange and complicated release that it had. So just up top, it did terribly. It did horrendously. It it made no money in China. No audiences wanted to go and see that cinematically. But there's various factors. Its release was held up by a conflict over Disney's involvement in a Martin Scorsese movie about the Dalai Lama called Kundun which a lot's been written on the, the Chinese response to that and Disney's response to the Chinese response to that. But because of that kind of conflict, the movie arrived a year later than it did in the rest of the world and just after New Year. So just as kids are returning to school, it was just the worst time you could release a kid's movie. And within that year, there'd been a lot of piracy of the film as well. So I just think 
all of these things conspired to make it a really terrible release window, a really terrible box office take. But yeah, there have been critiques from a Chinese cultural perspective about what the film does to the Mulan story. So Mushu in particular has been seen as disrespectful towards the traditional portrayal of the dragon in Chinese mythology, which usually embodies strength and power, the opposite of what Mushu is. Like, to us, he's a, a parody of that. Like, there's a lot of pathetic gags made by contrasting him to the traditional image of a, of a Chinese dragon. But to Chinese audiences, that was seen as somewhat disrespectful. Probably a part of why there's no Mushu in the live-action remake, which we'll come to later. And in addition to that, the character of Mulan herself has been critiqued as too individualistic and self-aggrandizing compared to her portrayal in the original story. And, you know, we've already talked about how this is a character who is acting on behalf of her family as much as she is on behalf of herself. But I think compared to her depiction in Chinese versions of the story, she is seen as not just fighting to protect her father and honor her family, but to find her place in the world and realise her own ambitions, which is contrasting with that traditional portrayal. I tried to read responses from not just Chinese critics, but Chinese academics and Chinese-American academics, and there's been some interesting debates. There's been a lot written on the extent to which Disney adhered to or changed the Mulan story, uh, and there's been some really interesting takes on it. So I wanted to read some quotes, one from a Chinese-American scholar called Jing Yin who writes that Disney renders the culture that produced this woman warrior as sexist, irrational, and an exotic cultural other. The altruistic, dedicated, filial, and loyal heroine is reduced to the individualistic girl who was crying to get out of the Chinese system. So this calls back to that idea I brought up before as how Chinese culture is used as a point against which to contrast contemporary American ideologies, which even if you agree with them, still depicts Chinese culture in a, in a particularly negative light. So Yin continues that this strategy simultaneously sustains the existing racial structures and keeps gender patriarchy in the West unquestioned, which I think rhymes with our assessment of the film's ultimate thesis on gender at the end. I also wanted to quote a more recent piece by an uh, academic called Chuo Yi Wang, who writes that compared to previous versions of the Mulan story, Disney's appropriation of Mulan is nothing special. So making that point that this is a story that's being adapted many times, and it's maybe a bit of a fallacy to compare the Disney version to a quote-unquote original version of the story and its ideologies, which doesn't really exist. So they write that... It's merely a routine continuation of the legend's long history of adaptation, which consistently epitomizes the complex interactions among diverse cultures and ideologies, both within China and between the East and the West, and that a productive criticism of the Orientalism underlying this version of Mulan, Disney's version of Mulan, should take into full account the immense hybridity and fluidity pulsing beneath the fallacy of a monolithic cultural authenticity. So Wang's piece is almost a critique of other pieces which have tried to make points by comparing this film to an original story, which doesn't necessarily exist. There's been lots of versions of this story, and some Chinese and Chinese-American academics would have it that it's actually problematic to only assess the film on the basis of authenticity. So there's been various different really interesting takes, really interesting pieces written about the film from that perspective with slightly different approaches to deconstructing it. But overall, the view seems to be this movie could have done better and in many ways it's quite specifically disrespectful, which has contributed, as well as all of those complications 
revolving around the release itself to the fact that this was not at all a successful film in China. What about us then? What do we make of Mulan? Uh, Rihanna, let's start with you. What star rating would you give Mulan? What was your experience of rewatching it? What do you think of this film these days? I think I would still give it four stars because I have such a good time with this film. I, I kind of, I love the relevance of Li Shang being like a military Nepo baby as well. <laughs> I think I was slightly frustrated re-watching it that Mulan does not quite seem to be as vocal or as verbal as some of the other characters, like the sort of more comedic ones, I guess, as the only woman pretty much apart from you know the grandmother at the beginning at the and the end but really the only woman all the way through she does not get a huge amount to say i think tonally they're not 100% sure whether the kind of the comedy the action the horror I, I think it's interwoven all the way through but mulan feels a little bit on the periphery of that herself but i do think it's such a beautiful looking film uh, in terms of the way that they have done the the watercolor ink paintings in the background i think the songs are some of the best in any of the disney movies mushu and cricky as like a comedy duo the sidekicks i'm always a big fan of the sidekicks and these are two of the absolute best the way that they relate to each other as well and i just really fancy lee shang so i think with all of that <laughs> it's a, it was a really positive experience for me okay so four stars from rihanna there presumably five stars specifically for lee shang uh mm. what about you sam what's your star rating here yeah i give it a four i think it's quite a solid four it Still, I mean, this is the last musical that Disney would do, the last proper musical that they would do for a while. Tarzan is kind of very borderline. It's the last movie for a while that really you kind of can't avoid comparing it to that incredible run of Little Mermaids, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. And I do think it still suffers in comparison to those. It's not quite on that level. But like on its own terms, this is a it's a it's a good movie. Yeah. I've got critiques. I've got critiques of all of these movies politically. You can't mm-hmm. avoid that with Disney a lot of the time and I think you do have to take that into consideration. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a really solidly entertaining film with the best Disney song of all time. Oof. Right in the middle. <laughs> I'm still stewing on that. I still don't know how I feel about that. Me neither, but it's what I'm saying. It's the stance I've chosen to take. <laughs> Well, I'm pretty much in line with you guys. Yeah, I think I'm going four stars for this. I think it has really impressive sequences. I was really blown away, like I said, by the action stuff in this film. I love Mulan as a character. I think she's really great. And the songs are very, very good. It's not a massively long film, and at the same time, I think it occasionally has slight pacing issues for me. I think... The film kind of weirdly looks beautiful and also the whole film is kind of in one singular palette. And so I think Mm. uh, compared to other Disney films where there's a huge amount of variety in kind of colour and tone and feeling all the way through, I think this one is more consistent but I think I could have done with a little bit more kind of rise and fall in in the visuals to, to kind of really keep the energy up. But overall, it's great, great songs, great characters, some really impressive animation in there. Four stars from me. Thumbs up. Good movie. Sam, we're not having another Hercules. We're still friends. It's fine. (laughs) I'm still reeling from that. Ben, can I give you a quick bit of trivia to try and convince you that it's the best Disney song of all time? Go on, then. Dizzy Ridley listened to it to prepare for all of our Star Wars action sequences. That makes so much sense. Oh, my God. Okay, that's so good. Now I'm not going to be able to rewatch the sequel trilogy without thinking of every scene with Rey being to the tune of (laughs) I'll Make a Man Out of You. That is so good. Somebody please do that. 
redub every rear fight with just swinging the staff around a lot of the time in the first one it's perfect in the third one she has the training sequence which is a great sequence where she's where the rebel base is and she's doing she's running and she's jumping and she's swinging the lightsaber around that somebody please if you're listening to this and you have time to spare and any inclination (laughs) if you put together that edit we will tweet it out anyway now it is time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. And yeah, there's a fair amount of stuff for Mulan. I think we should start with the live-action remake. That's a very recent one, Nikki Caro's remake of this film, which for me is one of the ones that I like these live action remakes where they kind of do something a bit different with the source material like with The Jungle Book where it becomes like a chase thriller with Mulan they quite smartly looked at it and went this is a historical war movie let's make a sort of historical war epic sadly drop the songs but incorporate them into the score there's a lot going on in the wider context of this film that is far far from great but the actual film itself, I enjoyed when I saw it. What about you guys? Have you seen this one, Rihanna? Yeah, I did see it. I um, I interviewed Nikki Caro for it as well. And it, yeah, you're right. There is quite a lot of problematic things. You know, I think one of you, you said earlier, like if Disney were remaking this, they would be sure to have more Asian people at the helm. And actually we know that, that they didn't really. And that's, Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That's kind of incredibly frustrating. In terms of it being a war movie, I think it's so elegant. It's really beautiful. I like their training montages, although they're so different from the animated version because they don't lean into the humour. They lean into the elegance, the red kind of outfits that they wear, the, the training outfits are really special, I think. It's a really memorable scene. And I don't know where I stand with the magic because apart from Mushu, there isn't really magic in Mulan in the animated version. There is a lot of magic in the live action version. And sometimes you kind of think, does that work? Um, Because it doesn't need it. It's an odd thing for it to be that way round for them to have added magic in. Yeah. But they have got another central female character who is antagonist turned, spoiler alert, sacrificial lamb almost she kind of she sacrifices it reminded me a bit of the snake in uh harry potter nagini who we see first of all as just a snake and then in the later films she turns out that it's actually a woman an animagus who also is kind of killed almost is kind of like sacrificed so it's a yeah it's an interesting weird retelling but i did kind of love that there is another female character opposite Mulan who has her own agency who makes her own choices who is also sort of pretending to be one thing has also been rejected Uh, so I do I did kind of love that exploration yeah for me my main criticism of it was the the magic stuff which I think it does feel weird doing that second but also I think it takes away from what I liked about the first movie what I like about Mulan as a character so like a big part of the movie is Mulan has like a particular unique access to chi which is depicted weirdly in this film anyway because in Chinese culture chi is like a vital life force possessed by all living entities as opposed to like the magical super fighty superpowers mm-hmm. that Mulan has access to in this film and that was a, a sticking point for Chinese critics and audiences with the movie as well but for me it's as much that as it is about 
Mulan is not special. Mulan should not be a special person. Mulan should not have unique, like, mm. physical or supernatural capabilities. She's not a, a good fighter. She doesn't have anything that puts her physically above any of her enemies or any of the other men in the army. She is smart. She is a lateral thinker. That is demonstrated constantly, as we've said before, throughout the animated movie. And it's not that that's totally removed from this version of the character, but I think it's detracted from when you give her this like pseudo-supernatural advantage. That was my main issue with the movie, but it's an enjoyable watch. Ben, thoughts? Yeah, like I said, I like this film. I enjoyed it when I watched it. It was a weird kind of victim of the pandemic where Mm -hmm. it was one of the first films that ended up going straight to streaming. And it was a shame because I remember hearing rumblings inside the Empire office. We had a feature on this movie. Uh, One of my colleagues did a bunch of interviews. I don't know if he visited the set at some point as well. And yeah, he was like, the whole thing they're doing, they're going like David Lean style, big sweeping historical epic. And I was like, wow, that's a really interesting take on this. And I think that comes across well in the film. It still it feels like a Disney action movie, but it feels like it has influences from East Asian cinema. I do think it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity that there weren't more East Asian creative people working behind the scenes on this film. That absolutely feels like, especially for something so recent, that mm-hmm. they really had an opportunity there that it's a shame they didn't take. There's also, just to kind of tee people up, you can go and read more about this, but there was a lot of controversy about where they shot this film Mm -hmm. and there being human rights abuses, basically, on parts of land where they shot this film and how kind of inappropriate that was. So you can go and read more about that. But for the film itself, I think it's generally one of the better Disney live-action remakes. Like I said, I like when they do something different with it, and this one does. So it feels like it has kind of a a worthwhile identity. But Sam, can the same be said of Mulan 2, the straight-to-DVD sequel, which I imagine, (laughs) Rihanna, you also have not watched. I dodge all of these whenever I can. Yeah, I think I've seen like 10 minutes of it and that was enough. I'm sorry. (laughs) I have nothing to add except it sounds and looks crap. They didn't even have Eddie Murphy back. They just got another guy doing an impression of Eddie Murphy. A white guy? They got a white guy doing an impression of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Not good at all. Most of the other voice cast return, but yeah, that is... That is such a dodgy decision. Mm. That is horrendous. But yeah, Mushu in general in this movie is subjective. One of the most brutal character assassinations I've ever seen. (laughs) So, (laughs) like seriously, you were saying like, oh, get Mushu his pedestal. And in this movie, Mushu gets his pedestal and it does bad things to him as a person. So Mulan, to set up, Mulan and Shang are preparing for their wedding. They are going to get married. It's a wedding movie. Yes, and the Emperor enlists them for another mission. So Mulan does get back involved with the action, which is, I think, a good thing for that character. They need to deliver the Emperor's three daughters to a neighbouring kingdom to forge an alliance through an arranged marriage, and Mulan and Shang come into conflict because Mulan thinks that these people should be allowed to marry whomever they want, and that becomes a serious issue when these three princesses fall in love with the three doofuses with Yao and Ling and Xian Po. No, they, they do not. escort them and, no. and the princesses fall for them. They find their girls worth fighting for. The, the, the weird thing is they match up with the criteria that they, they do. put forward in the song Girl Worth Why Fighting Why give women for. autonomy in a Disney movie? Yeah, so like Xian Po gets with a woman who's really into food and stuff and it's like, <laughs> oh, that is... <laughs> That is not the point of what that song was about. (laughs) So that's the main story. And there isn't really a villain in this movie, 
Unless you count Mushu. I feel like Shang sounds like the villain if he thinks that (laughs) arranged marriages are the way forward. Well, he thinks that doing what's best for China is the way forward, which is a a proxy for that, yeah. But all of this is exacerbated by Mushu, who is trying specifically to force Mulan and Shang apart because... Mushu is now, like, the king of the ancestors. He's on his pedestal. For some reason, that means that they are basically his servants. He forces, like, the spirits to do his bidding, to wait on him hand and foot. But then he finds out that when a woman marries a man, her husband's ancestors become her guardians. And she loses her previous guardians. So Mushu, you would think this would be like, oh, I love Mulan, I still want to be Mulan's guardian, so I don't want her to get married. But in fact, it's Mushu thinking, I'm going to be out of a job, I'm going to lose my servants, I'm just going to be back to banging the gong again. So he is he is completely assassinated. He is the villain of this movie. Every wow. single thing he does in this movie until right at the end is designed to force Mulan Shang apart. He's conspiring. And he's just a nasty, awful guy, voiced by a white man doing an Eddie Murphy impression. (laughs) You really sold it there, Sam. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're avoiding Mulan 2 in future then. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it on the film front then. What else have we got as the lasting legacy of Mulan? Well, there was only one video game, and it was for the Game Boy. And I only really bring it up because there's a level where you're naked Mulan swimming through the lake, trying to avoid being caught by men. (laughs) It's like a stealth level where you've got all these men swimming around and Mulan has to escape without them seeing her breasts, I guess. That's really inventive, to be fair. That's an interesting take for a level. It is. You know, I guess because there's not actually that much action in the movie. Maybe that's part of why it doesn't have a great video game legacy. So they have to take it where they can. Okay, then, what about the parks? Is there anything in the Disney theme parks for Mulan these days? Yeah, there's a couple of things. In Paris, there's a show called Mulan... La Légende, which I think (laughs) is the legend of Mulan. I think that's what that means. We'll double-check that. We'll look that up afterwards, Sam. Yeah, so that's a stage show, which is pretty cool, actually. It it tells the story of Mulan through mime and acrobatics and juggling, performed by the Flag Circus of China. So there's, like, videos of this on YouTube, and it is quite spectacular. And a bit like they did with, like, the Inkwash-style animation in the film, it seems like a way to... Let's tell this story a little bit through actual Chinese performance art in this case. So that's pretty cool. And there's also, I mentioned this when we talked about Pocahontas because it involved some of the sidekicks from that film. But Mushu presents the show The Magic of Disney Animation, which is basically just like a documentary that they put you in a room and make you watch. And I was quite (laughs) disappointed by it. But it's nice to see Mushu, I guess because Mulan was the most recent movie at the time, they get Mushu to, to talk us through how animation works and the history of Disney animation and, and which turkeys got cut from which movie. And it's definitely Eddie Murphy doing that one? Oh, is it hell? No. <laughs> oh, no. So there's bits and bobs here and there. The two movies, I guess, are the most prominent parts of Mulan's Last and Legacy, with the exception of, I think, probably the most important thing to come off this film in a lot of ways, the career of Christina Aguilera. Right? She does the version of Reflection, the pop version at the end of the film. Yeah, so I think we have to acknowledge that. That was her first single, and it's that performance that got her a deal with RCA. It's that performance that got her the funding for her debut album. There would not be a Christina Aguilera without this movie, and that would be a shame. I'm not a super fan or anything. So her next single after this was Genie in a Bottle, which was a number one smash. 
Shout out to Aladdin. Uh, yeah, wow. I didn't know that it was that way around. I always assumed that she got this song off the back of already being a big pop star. No, this made a star out of her. So that's probably the greatest part of the film's lesson legacy, but maybe we should end on just the worst, just the worst thing that this film inspired. <laughs> just one of the worst things that's happened in... I mean, oh, just the... Oh, oh. I mean, okay, not one of the worst things that's happened, but one of the cringiest, most embarrassing things that people have done. (laughs) What's happening, Sam? You seem very upset. What are we talking about here? I'm talking about the Rick and Morty McDonald's Mulan Szechuan sauce debacle. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the, the TV show Rick and Morty, which generally I like, for the most part, that is a funny show, but a lot of its fans have maybe taken it the wrong way and just love that character Rick is an awful guy and that's the joke and we're not supposed to take anything he says at face value but a lot of people do and there is a scene in one of the season finales where Rick goes on a very funny rant about how his entire motivation all the way through the show has actually been to get McDonald's to bring back the limited edition Szechuan sauce that they brought out to tie in with the movie Mulan. And normal people watched that and had a good laugh at that funny joke, that kind of parody, that very typically Dan Harmon parody of like television conventions, right? But some people, doofuses, right? Big dummies took that as a sign that they had to get the Szechuan sauce, that this Szechuan sauce is the greatest thing. If Rick wants the Szechuan sauce, then I want the Szechuan sauce. So eventually, McDonald's, also big dummies, big doofuses, thought, (laughs) well, okay, we might not any longer have any official relationship with Mulan, and we certainly don't have any official relationship with Rick and Morty, but we can certainly bring out a Szechuan sauce with rip-off Rick and Morty art on the little sauce packet and bring that out for like a couple of days and this won't be a debacle at all but instead a bunch of idiots stormed a bunch of mcdonald's stores because they didn't have enough sauce and ruined a lot of mcdonald's workers days oh no so because i always just heard oh they brought the sauce back and then it was like oh because of the show they brought the sauce back but people were bad about it people caused a ruckus oh yeah People caused a ruckus. There's videos of people jumping on tables and screaming, I'm Pickle Rick. Another joke, which is funny, but not for the reason people think it's funny. Yeah. Rick and Morty, (laughs) good show, bad fans, potentially, allegedly very bad creators in one case. I guess I was vaguely entertained reading about it, but it mainly just filled me with uh, just bad emotions. (laughs) The one thing I'll say, if any of our listeners actually managed to try the sauce, either back in the day or when they re-released it, if you managed to get your hands on the Szechuan sauce, we'd love to hear if it was actually delicious or not. That is the most important thing here. And that is it for this week's class. Rihanna, have you enjoyed your time here in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? I absolutely have. That was really fun. Thank you. It was. Uh, it's so nice to reflect on some of your favourite movies from when you were younger as well. It's such a great excuse to rewatch them. Especially when it's a really good one like this. Yes. 
But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people listen to your stuff? Where can people find you online? Well, I'm on Six Music every Monday morning with Lauren Laverne from about 9.40. I'm on five... Mackham Legend. Yes, <laughs> she's incredible. I'm on most Thursday afternoons on Five Live with Nahal. And uh, I also, as you mentioned earlier, do a podcast called Pod Pod, which is all about podcasting for podcasters. It's kind of like semi-industry, but also if you're kind of making a podcast it's quite it's got some really useful tips and interviews in there so do have a listen and i'm just i think i'm just at rihanna dylan on twitter who knows who knows anymore (laughs) they might have changed it by the time i finish this but thank you so much thanks for having me it's been a blast and join us again for our next seminar as we go back to the jungle and beat the phil collins drum with disney's tarzan In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll throw you your very own Stevie Wonder Party for you and all your friends. (laughs) But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Rihanna. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Should we go in for one last I'll make a man out of you? (laughs) Let's get Get down down to to business. (laughs) To To defeat defeat the Huns. Amazing, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thank you so much. (laughs) Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs, and our music is by Nefets. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram, and catch you for next week's class. (laughs) 